0: We can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. As we continue our Lord's Supper meditation through covenants, we are continuing and will be in for a while that covenant of redemption, that pre-temporal, intra-Trinitarian agreement between the Father and the Son and the Spirit uh, regarding the salvation of sinners in the Son. So certainly Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is an important text. There are many other texts as well, uh, but we'll look at verses 7 through 12. Certainly in 3 through 6, we see the Father plans, 7 through 12, the Son accomplishes, and the, uh, the Spirit applies in verses 13 and 14. So we'll look at the Son tonight in verses 7 through 12, but I will begin reading at verse 3 all the way to verse 14 to set the context. So Ephesians chapter 1, begin reading at verse 3. The forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in, which, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Well, let us pray. O Lord, our God, we are thankful that we get to come again this evening and consider the blessed truth of salvation. We know, oh God, that it was part of that pre-temporal plan. We know that we were predestined before the foundation of the world. Thank you, oh God, for this promise. Thank you, oh God, for this truth. Thank you, oh God, that it is a blessed pillow for which we can rest every day. That salvation comes not from ourselves, it comes from God who wills. And so may we put our faith and trust in you. May we take great comfort and encouragement uh, in these truths, oh God. And we're thankful that our redemption is found in the finished work of the Son, Thank you for his accomplishment. Thank you for what he has done. Thank you, O God, that in him we have an inheritance. In him we have redemption. In him we have all these blessed benefits, O God, these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Thank you, O God, for his work. Thank you for what he did. And thank you again that it is founded on that blessed eternal transaction. So, God, as we come to consider these high and lofty things that truly are too wonderful for us, help us to make sure we don't say things we ought not, Help us to focus on your word, focus on the truth, focus on the blessedness of these realities. Thank you for men of old who've hashed out these things and thought of these things, O God, that we can stand on the shoulders of those men. But more importantly, O God, we need your spirit. Give us illumination from on high. We pray, give us strength from on high. We pray to be awake and attentive, to hear the things that you have for us. For our minds truly are weak and feeble. So often we consider other things. But help us tonight, O God, to set our mind upon Christ, set our mind upon his redemption, set our mind upon his revelation, set our mind upon the reward that is found in him. So, God, we pray that you'd help us now by your spirit, strengthen your saints, we pray. Encourage us, uplift us, we pray, in the finished work of the Son, in the mystery revealed, in all these blessed things that you give. And so may we praise you, may we honor you to the praise of your glory for all the spiritual blessings you give to us. So be pleased to strengthen your saints. Be pleased to save sinners, we pray. And in all things, oh God, we pray that you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. But when we looked at verses three through six, I start off by highlighting the importance to confess the mystery of the Trinity, one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. But also there are other great mysteries about the Christian religion that are difficult for us to comprehend. And that really focuses in on one of those things, namely the decree. How it is that God who is perfect, how it is who God who is eternal uh, engages in a decree in which there is no succession. You see, we think in succession, we think in movement, but God simply just is and God simply just will. So there is a great mystery there when we consider God's decree uh, and who he is. There's also a great mystery as well when we consider the redemption that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that this eternal God works in time and space? Well, thankfully, the Bible reveals our God to us by way of covenant. And certainly there is a lot of covenantal language descriptive of the relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Luke 22, 29, especially, which we will look at, the Lord Jesus Christ says to his disciples, I bestow, or actually covenant, to you a kingdom. There, I think, referring to the covenant of grace, which we've talked about. But also he says, just as my father has bestowed or covenanted one to me. So there is clear covenantal language descriptive of the father, son, and spirit's plan of redemption. Sam Renahan says, scripture presents that eternal purpose and promise of salvation to mankind metaphorically. In the mode of a covenant transacted between the persons of the trinity so it is a blessed and high doctrine and it really is focusing in on the kingdom of christ as we've gone through our covenant series we first looked at the kingdom of creation so the covenant made with adam the covenant made with noah then we looked at the kingdom of israel the covenant made with abraham then the covenant made with moses and the covenant made with david which you all remember right you all remember everything i said about all those things And then we looked at the new covenant in time and space, the new Testament, the covenant of grace, wherein God offers salvation unto sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom of Christ. But that covenant of grace given to us, given to sinners, the gospel proclamation is founded on this covenant of redemption, this blessed eternal transaction between father, son, and spirit. And so in Ephesians one verses three through 14 There is a lot of Trinitarian language here for us and that we see the work of all three persons of the Trinity, one will and threefold execution because the hope of the world is found in the plan of God. And the hope of the world is found in the accomplishment of the son who came down of the son who took on human flesh of the son who redeemed us by his blood. And so in Ephesians one, seven through 12, Paul praises God, the father, The accomplished redemption that believers have in Christ. So the father plans and tonight the son accomplishes. And we'll look at this under three headings this evening. First of all, we'll see redemption by the son, verses 7 through 8a. Secondly, we'll see revelation by the son, verses 8b through 10. And then lastly, we'll see the reward of the son, verses 11 and 12. So three R's, redemption by the son, revelation of the son, and reward of the son. So let's first look at the redemption by the Son in verses 7 through 8a. And notice he says, in him, we have redemption through his blood. He starts off, though, in verse 3 by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He goes on then to talk about the predestination by the Father, the plan in eternity. Now it is, again, Father, Son, and Spirit who engage in this plan, but we appropriate certain things to certain persons of the Trinity as it's revealed to us because we don't think the way god thinks we think as we learn we think in succession we think as we hear different things that's the way we think and thankfully god reveals uh, himself to us in the way that we think so the father plans and then we see again in verses 7 through 12 the son accomplishes how is it that we have all these benefits how is it that we have the spiritual blessings well it has to come from the finished work of the son so in him In the beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ. A, we are united to him, but B, in what he has done for us, we have, as he says, verse seven, redemption through his blood. You see, what's important to understand about that word of redemption is it's typically connected with the idea of slavery. Now slavery was a larger institution in the Greco-Roman world than it is perhaps for North America today, although certainly slavery is still prevalent, but when we think of slavery in the Greco-Roman world it was not always man-stealing perhaps people were born into it perhaps people sold themselves into it Uh, perhaps people uh, had to do it for uh, paying back uh, something they stole as a form of punishment so it's much more than just man stealing when we see slavery in the bible we can't just think the slave trade uh, from uh, the United States of America we have to think of what's going on in that world but so this word redemption has a backdrop when it comes to slavery and typically brethren for us when we think of it in a spiritual manner We were once slaves to sin, right? This is how Paul speaks in the book of Romans. We were once slaves to sin. Now we are what? Slaves to righteousness. So the beautiful thing about Christ and his redemption is that he's redeemed us. Those who were once slave, he has freed us. Those who were once enslaved to such things, he has made us and set us free. Now, the Ephesians would have understood the concept much more than we do. The Gentiles around the world would have, much, uh, would have understood that context much more than we do. The image comes up in Colossians chapter one as well, describing the spiritual work of Christ. That is, we are redeemed in him. We who were once slaves have now been set free. Now, certainly there is an Old Testament illusion. When you think about the Israelites in Egypt, they were once slaves and God had set them free. And it's no surprise that in the Bible the illusion of uh, the, 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 the 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 Exodus is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. It points to Him. It points to what He would do. Not only uh, the Old Testament people had redemption from physical slavery, well in Christ we have redemption from spiritual slavery in Him. So in Him we have redemption. In Him we have been set free. And notice the means by which we've been set free. Uh, set free uh, through his blood through his crucifixion through what he did in time and space see it how is it that the eternal god saves well the way in which the eternal god saves is the one who is born in time you see when it's when we think of the son who is fully god and fully man we must remember that as he is fully god he is of the same substance as the father right begotten before all ages but when it comes to his manhood he was made like us, of one substance with us, born into the world. That's hard for us, right? To grasp. But we must see there that the one who is son is fully God and fully man. And the way in which God, who is eternal and the way he eternally decrees to save, is in the work of the Son who comes and lives in this world. And so what we're seeing here is what he does in created effect, what he does in time and space, the one who is son, he comes down. He redeems, and he redeems through sacrifice. He redeems through the shedding of his blood. That's why we can improperly say the Lord of glory shed his blood, though they crucified the Lord of glory. It's not as though God and his divinity died, right? Because he cannot die. But it was the son. It was the son in his human nature. Who bore the brunt of it upon himself, which we can, uh, what you can say about the nature, you can say about the person. I know it's a lot more Christology tonight, dear brethren, but we have to think in these terms to make sure we don't say something we shouldn't about our God and our Christ. But again, it's to magnify what he has done for us, right? Redemption through his blood. How he went to that cross, willingly. How he laid down his life, willingly. How he raised up his life, willingly. For wretches like you and I. We have redemption through his blood. And certainly the Old Testament sacrifices point forward to this, point forward to the, the, the greater sacrifice who would come as the book of Hebrews certainly highlights for us. So in him, we have redemption through his blood. Now notice the nature of redemption, what he does, what he gives to us, why, uh, what is bestowed upon us through the shedding of his blood. The forgiveness of sins. The implication there, brethren, is that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, right? That's exactly what Paul is going to say in Ephesians chapter 2. You, he made alive, who who were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were born into this world sinful. We were born with a sinful nature, born with that corruption, and born with the guilt of Adam. We were born with those things. We are vile. We are wretched. We only did what was wicked and what was wrong. And yet, while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. It's how God manifests his love, according to Romans chapter 5. That this one who is son, this one who is perfect, this one who is God, took on human flesh to die for wretches like you and I. That we might have forgiveness of all of our sins. All of the things we think, all of the words we say, all of the deeds that we do, past, present, and future, are forgiven in him. And we can take great comfort in the fact that he is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And though even brethren, even though we have remaining corruption, we still struggle with sin. Those sins are forgiven in him. That ought to be a great boon and a comfort to the people of God concerning the redemption that we have forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of our trespasses that he willingly just cancels the debt in the son. He takes away, he carries our sins away in the son and in his blood in him. We have redemption through the forgive uh, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And notice, I mean, this is all just one big hymn to God, one big eulogy. The word blessed there is to describe the blessedness. I know we use that in a funeral sense, but typically describe someone's life and hopefully the good parts of their life. So we're praising God for what he has done. And he, Paul, you can kind of sense the enthusiasm sometimes in him, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace god is not some divine curmudgeon he's not some giant jerk in heaven yes he is righteous in every way and he rightly will pour out his wrath and rightly does pour out his wrath but notice he bestows all these gifts he gives us redemption according to the riches of his grace and then in verse 8 which he made to abound toward us which he made to abound toward us and the image there of abounding is one with a ton of money and an exorbitant amount of money, just giving it away. One who doesn't have so much wealth, they don't know what to do with it. Now, again, that's for us, right? God is perfect life and perfect blessedness in himself. And that again should highlight all the more the goodness that is found in the redemption that we receive from him it is according to the one who is good according to his mercy and goodness that he bestowed all these things and gave us forgiveness to the riches of his grace. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is good. He is long-suffering. He is abundant in goodness and truth, having made all these things to lavish all these things upon us, all according to his sheer good pleasure. And when you consider who he's writing to, and you consider the language of adoption in verse five, and you consider the language of redemption in verse seven. Typically, slaves would not have been adopted. If someone was looking for an heir, someone was looking perhaps for a son to perhaps carry on the family name or to give their inheritance to, slaves are not the choice. They wouldn't even have been thought of, they wouldn't even been considered, But yet, when you consider the fact that we were once slaves to sin, and we've been redeemed in him, and he bestows all these things upon us, and he gives us adoption in the Son, what love the Father has for us, doesn't he? The goodness and mercy that is found in him is really abounding, and we do not even scratch the surface, do we? When we consider all the good things that he has given, we would never have been picked who would never have been chosen, yet God in his goodness, he predestined to, uh, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. This is why the son came, to redeem us, that God would lavish his gifts upon us. This is the purpose of the second person taking on human flesh. It is for salvation. And much like we considered this morning with God's love and For God so loved the world, brethren, to stop and ponder the riches of his grace. Stop and ponder the redemption that you do not deserve, yet is still given to you anyway. That is still applicable, isn't it? That is still application, thinking and pondering and meditating on those things. And we ought to stop and ponder every day. We ought to do it every day. We forget. We ought to stop and ponder and remember when we consider what we once were, consider what we are now, consider what he has done for us. Does he not deserve our praise? Consider the redemption that is found in him. Though we were once dead, we are made alive. So that's the redemption in the sun. Let's then look secondly at the revelation of the sun in 1b through 10. Now commentators are divided on what to do with wisdom and prudence. Does it go at the end of verse 8 or does it go with verse 9? I'm not going to die on that, but I think it goes with verse 9. I can't remember why, but that's okay. You can go read the commentaries later on. Uh, But perhaps it does. So perhaps, again, I can't remember why. That's unfair, I know. But just go read the commentaries another time. But in any case, in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will. That is, mystery of his will is done in wisdom and in prudence. Again, it further highlights the fact that the revelation of the Son, who is the Word, John 1, is not willy-nilly. God knows what he is doing. Again, that's for us. God wills according to his perfection. God is perfect wisdom. God is wisdom itself. God is knowledge itself. God is perfect will itself. And yet God knows what he's doing, right? And all those things highlight the fact that God, as he works in time and space, knows exactly what he is doing. It is a perfect and wise plan, right? And sometimes we balk at it. Sometimes we turn our noses up at it sometimes we think we would do better than god well that's not the way paul speaks here is it he's talking here and he's praising god for all the wisdom and prudence wisdom and understanding wisdom and intelligence he has made known to us the mystery of his will again the cross is foolishness isn't it the cross is a stumbling block to men When it comes to the plan of God, it is perfect wisdom. When you consider what we did against God, when you consider the way in which we need to be saved, and the fact that it must be one who is perfect to save us, yet it must be one who is man to save us. When you consider all those things, is it not perfect wisdom and understanding of God to bring about salvation in this way? And notice he says the mystery of his will. He doesn't just do it right away. He has the, you know, by farther steps, the gospel is proclaimed in Genesis 3.15. And by farther steps, something about the one who would come is further revealed, which has been our whole covenant series, right? Reveals something about the one who would be Abraham's seed, the one who would be the greater Moses, the one who would be the, 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 the perfect sacrifice, the one who would be the greater David, all those things point to him. And so when we see the language of mystery of his will, that's what he's referring to. He's referring to the finished work of the Son. And not just the finished work of the Son, but also the fact that the Son is going to save not just Jews, but Gentiles. That is the mystery of his will. Whenever you see the word mystery in the Bible, it refers to something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed. And the thing that has now been revealed in the coming of Christ is salvation is not just for Jews, but it's also for Gentiles. That is the mystery revealed, isn't it? And that ought to be a blessed thing. Because if you're not a Jew, you can find (laughs) salvation, right? If you're one who is not a Jew, you can find mercy in him. Again, it's not based on ethnic descent, but based on faith in the son. And it's in Christ. All of the promises of God of the old pointed to. Brother Cam Porter is going to preach on Luke 24 in the evening next week. So don't miss it. And in Luke 24, what does he say? Jesus, as he's speaking to the disciples, he says, all the law and the prophets point to me. That is the mystery revealed. It all points to the Son, and the work of the Son is to bring all things, even Gentiles, in him. And that certainly applies to the book of Ephesians. Later on in Ephesians chapter 2, He does describe how those who are far off have been brought near, how he is making one body, how he's making one temple, how he's building one together in Christ. And even, uh, sorry, Ephesians 3, 9, he says, well, verse 8, he says, talks about the purpose of the mystery, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. Verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus. So Christ was always the plan. Christ coming and dying was always the purpose to bring all together in him, to save Jew or Gentile. In him, not willy nilly, but something that was once hidden has now been revealed. And again, the Old Testament we could describe as drips and sparks and darkness. The New Testament is a river, a fire, and the light that has dawned. Former days he spoke by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken by the sun. So he's made known to us, brethren, the mystery of his will. And notice he's continuing the lavish discussion. Of God's good pleasure, God's purpose, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. It was always God's plan, always God's purpose for Christ to die, for Christ to be buried, for Christ to be raised, and to save sinners in him. That was always the perfect plan, according to God's perfect sovereignty, according to God's good pleasure. God really is good and he works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Then he goes on to say in verse 10, that at the appointed time, that in the fullness of the times, very eschatological, the word is dispensation, the dispensation of the times. I'm not for dispensationalism i'm for what the bible says uh but certainly there was the old covenant and now we are under the new covenant and the new covenant is new creation is it not and we even even paul says in second corinthians 5 20 if anyone is in christ he is new creation and in ephesians chapter four he's going to describe how we are the new man in christ right the old man has been put off we are the new man in him are we not Do we not live then as the new creation people? And really one through three is describing how the son purchases for us new creation. And chapters four through six is then how we live as the new creation people in him. And even two in verse 16 of chapter one, when Paul prays, he prays that they would know these things, that they would know the riches of what God has done, that they would know the greatness of his power, that they would know uh, that the Christ who's been raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God, the father almighty, who has been given dominion, that they would know all these things and that he would be filled all in all, that he'd be head over all in his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So it was always God's purpose that in the proper time, the dispensation, the plan of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one, Jew and Gentile, all things in Christ. Gather all things. It's a cosmic reconciliation in him, which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. Was there not a cosmic fallen Adam? All man brought in sin because of that one man. Wasn't there one man who brought sin into this world yet by another righteousness, comes into this world even even to david was not perfect in any means by any means he could not keep the law he could not do it yet we have one who does we have the last adam in christ so even though we're talking about the eternal plan of redemption we do see it beginning to be unfolded in the old testament with the promises with the old testament texts with the messiah all pointing to christ all things converging with the lord jesus christ seriously the sunday school answer suffices what do all things point to jesus if that's all you know and all you remember that's all you need to remember all in him the dispensation of the fullness of the times he would gather in one all things in christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth dr ba says Christ's messianic work is a royal forceful conquest over the over all the things in heaven And things on earth, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And thus, God has acted definitely in the Messiah to bring the world history to a climax in the fullness of all eras. We just long for the end of the present age. But, brethren, we're already living in the overlap, are we not? He has been given power in this age and the age to come. And if you are in Christ, you are of that new creation. We just long for its fullness to come in. We still live in the present creation. That's why we're exiles in the land. but We long for the fullness to come in, in him. And all of these things have been revealed in Christ. This is where we have revelation. This is where we have all things revealed in him. God, the Christ is our prophet who speaks. Christ is the word who was with God and who is God. According to John 1, he is our prophet who reveals all these things to us. thankfully by his spirit he still helps us to see because we're not the sharpest bulbs in the shed or that's not the proper saying is it the brightest bulbs in the shed the sharpest tool in the shed it's late and i need a holiday uh but uh verse uh if you notice verse 16 what he prays sorry verse 17 that he may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in our christian walk we still need god to give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation because it takes us time to learn things, doesn't it? Even the things that are supposedly easy for us to understand, it takes us a very long time for us to understand them. That's why, you know, the prayer always before the preaching is called the prayer of illumination. It's Lord, help us by your spirit to understand what's going on. And, what's, and I said this morning, and I say again, I'll say again as the sermon goes on, the Bible is baby talk, is it not? The scriptures are accommodating to us and yet we struggle. I mean, we struggle with the baby talk part of it, right? We struggle with the fact that it's for us yet. We have the difficulty comprehending that how we need the spirit of revelation, the spirit of illumination, the spirit of wisdom to see the knowledge of him. That's why we need to read our Bible daily and be prayerful when we do. That's why we need to read it a lot. And when I say a lot, I mean, a lot, a lot. I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot. You need to read it probably at least once a year, right? <laughs> Twice, maybe. Three, I don't know. Four, I'm just kidding. That's a long time. If you, three, if you read three chapters a day, you can get through it in a year, okay? But we really need to know our Bibles. Then we need to read things that help us understand what the Bible says. That's why we don't just jettison history, right? I mean, how arrogant are we? to think we can just read our Bibles on our own and figure it all out with no help from anybody else in history. I'm sorry. I'm not that smart and I'm sorry. You're not that smart either. I love you all, but you know, we're not, we need God's wisdom and mercy and men of old to help us with all of this. Cause thankfully we have the revelation of Christ and what he has done. So that's the revelation of the son Let's then look thirdly and finally at the reward in the son, verses 11 and 12. Verse 11. In him, a lot of in hims in verses 3 through 14. Also, that is in Christ. In him also, we have, a, have obtained an inheritance. Have a, obtained an inheritance. This language comes from a word that is typically used in the Old Testament to refer to the distribution of the promised land. He's in Joshua 19, especially when they divvy up the tribal allotments, talking about that inheritance. So what's he doing here? The Old Testament promised land is a type of heaven, is it not? It's a type of the inheritance that we have in Christ, the inheritance that he has given to us. So he says here, we have obtained an inheritance. Then in verse 14, we have the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of that inheritance until the redemption And that fullness comes in. But brethren, whether we see it or not, we have that inheritance. Whether we see it or not, we have that inheritance that's unfading, undefiled in the heavenly places. We have that inheritance that does not rot. We have that inheritance that does not decay. In him, eternal life, perfect blessedness with him. In him also we have obtained such blessed things. And again, this refers not just to Jews, but clearly, spiritually, Jew and Gentile, those who believe, those who are predestined in him have have obtained this inheritance already. So if you have nothing in this world, brethren, know that you are rich. If you have nothing in this world, dear brethren, know that you are rich in the Son, rich in God, rich in our triune Father, Son, and Spirit for what they have done for us in him we have obtained such things and he goes on he continues on to talk about predestination and purpose pre being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will What god had predetermined beforehand god cannot look down the corridors of time god cannot look down the corridors of time and what i mean by that is god does not think in succession right God knows all things by one undivided act. We know by succession, he knows it all by one undivided act. So even to say that God looks down the corridors of time is just to talk about God in a way that is not proper to God. So often we do this, right? We bring God down to us rather than simply confess who he is. Because if you think of the language of the fact that God is infinite, who can search the limits of the almighty, Job 11, or the fact that he is eternal from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, Psalm ninety or the fact that he does not change, I'm, I'm not like a son of man who changes, uh, Numbers 23, or the fact that in him there's no shadow due to change, James 1.17. We have to make sure we don't say what we ought not to say about God. And to say that God can look down the corners of time would be to say that he doesn't know something. And that would mean to say that he is not then eternal. So we have to be careful with that. And even, you know, Exodus 3, I am who I am. I am who I am am he is dear brethren and because of him we exist and that's important when you consider his plan of redemption now i'm going to talk about some things that are really difficult for us to grasp i know i should have done this at the beginning i know we're getting to the end and so if you're a little sleepy just pinch your leg slap your face go i don't know just do something to wake up for a second here so hopefully you can track with me just a little bit So that covenant of redemption is, as I've said, it is eternal, right? And notice a lot of the language of what Paul says here is predestined, purpose of him, works all things according to the counsel of his will. So how is it the God who is eternal works in time and space? Well, we must remember that the God who is eternal doesn't stop being eternal as he works in time and space. But when we consider especially the plan of redemption... That is, again, for us. It's so not as though God decided to wake up one day and that morning decide to have a deliberation between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Hey, we're going to save people. Let's see how this goes. No, it's God's eternal decree. And in God's decree, there is no succession. The succession, once again, is for us. There's not point 0.1, point 0.2, point three, point, There's not that that's for us, dear brethren. So we must understand that and recognize that we're speaking in baby talk. And so when we think of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit willing to save sinners in Christ, we must make sure we recognize it's one will in threefold execution. And the Son is in no way subordinate to the Father in eternity. There is a doctrine, I referred to it this morning, and sometimes I get my sermons mixed up, especially when we're they're talking about sometimes the same thing. When I started talking about monogenes this morning from which is only begotten. I did have in my mind a certain doctrine that comes up in conservative theologians. It's called the eternal functional subordination of the son. What they're trying to highlight is that within the Godhead, within God in himself, the father has somewhat of a higher authority than the son. That is the son in eternity not in his human nature, but in eternity, submits to the Father. What's wrong with that, dear brethren? The implication is that there are three wills. And if you talk about three wills, you begin to fall into what's called tritheism. Not one God, but three gods. One will, threefold execution. We good? One will, threefold execution. We have to understand that. It's when the sun comes down, he obeys, right? Philippians 2, the one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a servant and appeared in the likeness of man. And when he was found to be in the appearance of man, he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross that is the eternal plan of God would be that the son would take on human flesh without any change in the Godhead. And it would be the son in his human nature who would obey without any way uh, 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 going back into eternity from what the son has done in this world. Okay. I got a little bit more, one more thing. And in Trinitarian language, we have to talk about the missions and the processions. And this helps us with will i think with the triune plan of god the processions are what we talked about this morning the eternal relation of origin and when i say origin it's not as though there was a beginning it's just how we speak right the father unbegotten the son eternally begotten the spirit eternally proceeding from the father and the son that's ad intra that's in god how then that is revealed to us in time and space to finite creatures is by the mission when the Son takes on human flesh that is his mission and how do we see the trinity dear brethren then in the revelation of the Son? and so everything we're talking about in verses 7 through 12 is the mission of the Son, based upon the eternal plan of god in that eternal relation of origin Anyway, next week, we will talk about the work of the store, the mission of the spirit and what he does specifically, even though it's a triune work of God, what he does specifically when it comes to the salvation of sinners. But we must recognize that God is the one who is perfection. God is the one who wills perfectly. That is in perfect act, but the things in which he wills, could be otherwise. That is creation and redemption. The things outside of God do not contribute anything to God. If you get that, that's probably the best thing to get. If we just understand that it's one will, threefold execution, the Son does not obey in eternity, that's fine. If you tuned out the other stuff, that's fine. I can give you other books to read on that. That's okay. But we must understand, again, to make sure we don't fancy God to be what he is not that's why we rely upon men of old to hopefully make sure we don't posit three wills in god father son and spirit there is the father is god the son is god the spirit is god yet they are not three gods and the reason i say that as well is because perhaps what paul is combating here is the pagan idea of zeus zeus Looked human for one. Also, he was bound and constricted by something outside of himself, namely a will. There's nothing outside of God in which God needs. Because if there's something outside of God, then God stops to be God, right? He is who he is. He is perfect perfection in and of himself. God is not bound by will, he is will. We have to understand that. Otherwise we will make God to be like Zeus and make God to be like man rather than recognizing who he truly is. I know that's a lot. I know that's heavy, but brethren, as I said this morning, this stuff was just part and parcel of Christian language. It shows how so far we have fallen in this I was telling a brother beforehand, Stephen Charnock has his existence and attributes of God. Those were sermons, dear brethren, for the people in the pew. You realize John Calvin was written for the people in the pew? Wilhelmus Abrackel's four volumes was written for the people in the pew? So, I'm, so I know it's a lot, but rather we must, we must understand that. Perhaps the best thing is just read... Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea, it's like, you can do it tonight in five minutes. Read the Athanasian Creed, you can do that tonight in 10 minutes. Read the Council of Chalcedon, you can read that tonight in three minutes. You can do it. It's not, you just read through it. How they hammered all these things out. Brethren, something has been lost, and we must make sure we don't fancy God to be what he is not. And really all of this, we consider the will, consider who he is, consider Christ and his redemption for us, is to put us in our place. Theology hopefully isn't meant to puff us up, but to bring us down. And the more we study theology proper, the more it ought to bring us down and the more it ought to cause us to, verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. This whole thing is all about the praise of God, who he is and what he has done for us who he is in his perfection, and who what he has done in our salvation. How do we not sing loudly? How do we not praise him more often? How do we not thank him for all that he has done? Father, Son, and Spirit. Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies to the praise of his glory. All things in him. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we confess we do not comprehend who you are. We cannot know you or understand you in your essence. We cannot comprehend you in your being. Yet we know, oh, God, you reveal things to us in your word in finite ways to help us at least apprehend or to make sure we don't say things we shouldn't. So often, oh, God, we like to make you in our image rather than to recognize that you are holy and you are wholly other than we are. And that even so, oh God, even in your decree, even in your plans, we like to think our plans would be better than yours. But thank you, O oh God, that your decrees are perfect. Your decrees are infinite. Your decrees are wisdom. Your decrees are perfect understanding. And even as we see and um, things fold in time and space, as you're the one who changes not, you're the one who works in time and space, which changes without changing yourself. Thank you for this. And thank you that we have a rock in which we can uh, lean, lean upon and cling to in this time. Thank you, O God. We have a God we can look to day by day. The one who is I am. The one who is everlasting. The one who is infinite. These things really truly are too high and lofty for us. And we pray that you would forgive us. Forgive me for anything that I have said I ought not to. Please forgive us for all the times we have said things we should not have. Thank you, O God, that there is mercy and forgiveness in you. And thank you that we see your plan come to its fulfillment in the incarnation, in the crucifixion, in the redemption that is found in the Son. Thank you that we have redemption in him. Thank you that we have forgiveness of sins through his blood. Thank you for the, the lavish grace which you bestow upon us. Thank you, O God, for your eternal plan. Thank you, O God, for the inheritance that we have. All these things are so Uh, glorious, yet so often we forget them. So, God, may we remember them. May we be reminded of them. May we know who we are in him. And may we confess the God of heaven and earth, that you are, and you are Father, Son, and Spirit. So we ask, oh God, you you help us now as we come to partake of the the bread and the wine. May we do so, oh God, uh, with faith and trust and understanding. Thank you that you do stoop to our nature and give us these blessed signs of Christ's body broken and Christ's blood shed. So we ask, oh God, that you'd be with us now. Be pleased to strengthen your people. Be pleased to save sinners. And we pray in all things, you would be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.